Well, I'm excited about today. We start a new sermon series for uh, the, the church season of Lent, uh, which Pastor Sam already described a bit. Lent is the 40-day period of time leading up to Easter, and it's intended to parallel the 40 days that Jesus spent in the wilderness being tempted. Uh, interestingly, by a th- the, the three big categories of temptation common to human beings, appetite, ambition, and approval. And he confronted all of those and, uh, says Luke's gospel, came out of the wilderness in the power of the Holy Spirit after having wrestled with those things by God's guidance. Uh, Lent is a time of preparation and reflection. We prepare, of course, for the events of Holy Week, Jesus' death on the cross, and, and Easter, his resurrection from the dead. And we reflect on our own lives in this season. Uh, Ash Wednesday is about coming toward God with a sense of grieving, of mourning our own sin. That's what the ashes are about. So we enter this season with that kind of spirit, praying, Lord, is there any impure way in me? Show me that. Help me be concerned about that, grieve that, mourn that. Help me turn toward you. So we are looking at our lives, and we're looking at the life of Jesus, and trying to figure out where the rubs are. Where's the friction? Where's the tension? How can we seek the Lord? This series will invest the next six weeks in the last six hours of Jesus' earthly life. In those six hours on the cross, Jesus said some things, seven things specifically, and his words from the cross are traditionally known as the last seven words, but really they were the last seven statements he made. They weren't just one word at a time. Uh, And interestingly, no single gospel account records all seven of these. You know, as followers of Jesus, we understand the gospels to be uh, witnesses to the same life and events from different angles. They share some content that's very similar. But much like uh, maybe four people that witnessed a car accident, if you asked them what happened, they would report the event with different words and emphasizing different things. So we understand the Gospels to be looking at the same thing from different angles, and they all report things that Jesus said from the cross. And because no one Gospel includes all seven statements, we don't know the exact order in which they took place. So for this series, we'll be using the traditional ordering of those last seven words, uh, which makes logical sense, and you'll see that as we, as we flow through it. And that order looks like this. First word, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Woman, here is your son. Here is your mother. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I am thirsty. It is finished. And Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now these, these are important words for multiple reasons. I mean, first and foremost, Jesus spoke them, and we believe some stuff about Jesus. We pay very careful attention to what he said because we believe that he was revealing God to us. You know, we, we understand the whole trajectory of the gospel. So we, we pay attention to Jesus, of course. Second, we tend to pay careful attention to the words of a dying person, don't we? I don't know if you've had that, that, that experience. I've been with many people who have died to this life, and we know intuitively um, that there might be something really important in those words. Revealing someone's heart or what they really value, uh, where they are emotionally and spiritually. Uh, John Wesley, as he died to this life, is reported to have said this, best of all, 
God is with us. Gone. Final words are important. And finally, these words are important because they were spoken from the cross and the nature of crucifixion made speaking while being crucified terribly painful because ultimately most people from crucifixion died because they suffocated. They could no longer pull themselves up enough to get one last breath. So to think of pulling up to take a breath and expending that breath on a verbal statement means that Jesus must really have wanted us to hear these things. In fact, a couple of his last seven statements were prayers. He certainly could have prayed those silently. But again, apparently Jesus wanted us to overhear his praying in his dying. We're at one of those today, the first word. Let me read it for us from Luke chapter 23. As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon of Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. And skipping ahead a few verses. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Friends, indeed, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Writes one commentator I very much appreciate. The grim customs of the crucifixion march were well known to every Roman subject. You know, the horrors of crucifixion were politically purposeful meant to instill fear in the population. Crucifixions happened along main roads with the clear message being, obey Rome or that might be you. It's a powerful statement. The vertical beam of the cross would be fixed in the ground by the main road sometime prior to the crucifixion and the one sentenced to death by crucifixion would be made to process to that location, carrying the cross member known as the patabulum on their shoulders. It's a gruesome business, but of course the cross has to support a human body. So that cross member was substantial, weighing up to 100 pounds. The soldiers would lead the condemned person on the longest possible route through the city to the place of crucifixion says one commentator, quote, so cold fear would grip the population as a deterrent to crime. Jesus had been beaten and scourged before he was made to carry that cross member and it didn't take the, the Roman soldiers, four of them, long to realize that he would not be able to make it to the place of crucifixion. So they grabbed a poor guy from the crowd, Simon from Cyrene, 
Uh, Cyrene is in northern Africa in the area we now know as Libya. Simon was likely Jewish, had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. He and his family had traveled a long way and they had just arrived in Jerusalem. Being a foreigner and guest to the city, he presumably just happened upon this ghastly procession. He was, quote, on his way in from the country. Maybe the soldiers grabbed him because he looked different. We don't know. We do know that he was made to take up the cross and follow Jesus. He carried it all the way to Golgotha, the place of the skull, likely a trash dump just outside of town on the main road. Once they arrived there, the soldiers crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, one on his left, says the text. And then comes Jesus' first word from the cross. It makes sense from a timing perspective. He was either in the process of being nailed to the cross or that had just been completed and he was now hanging in the air and he prayed. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. There's been a lot of ink spilled debating the question of who's the them? For, for whom exactly was Jesus praying? Some say it was only the Roman soldiers who were at that moment crucifying him or had just had. It seems clear at, at the very least he, he was at least praying for them. They were right there next to him. Some believe the them included the crowd that had gathered. That was all part of the, the dramatic public shaming involved in a crucifixion. There was a reason the cross was placed in a highly trafficked area. Look at what Fleming Rutledge says. Those crowds understood that their role was to increase by jeering and mocking the degradation of those who had been thus designated unfit to live. The theological meaning of this is that crucifixion is an enactment of the worst that we are, an embodiment of the most sadistic and inhuman impulses that lie within us. Maybe the them included the crowd. Some include as them the religious leaders who conspired to accuse Jesus and who presented him to the Romans hoping that they would execute him. That plan worked. For me, the whole conversation about exactly who the them is doesn't really matter because it seems like two things are clear. First, the plain sense meaning of the moment is that Jesus' initial prayer after being crucified was to ask forgiveness for those who put him on the cross. That's certainly clear. He wasn't praying for innocent bystanders. He was praying for his enemies. In the climax of his earthly suffering and pain, which was caused by them. He was asking God to forgive them. That's the point. 
And, and we don't have a, a suitable word in English, do we, to describe that kind of love? I mean, stunning doesn't capture it. Astounding feels weak. Amazing isn't even in the ballpark. At the very moment when humanity was at its absolute worst, Jesus prayed forgiveness. And remember what the book of Hebrews says, the sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. The exact representation of his being. So as Jesus hung there in excruciating pain, praying for all of us who put him there, he was representing God the Father exactly. Second reason the debate doesn't make much difference to me is it seems pretty clear that Jesus was simply verbalizing what he was doing on the cross, wasn't he? And the them of his work on the cross was not limited to the soldiers crucifying him or the crowd mocking him. You know, the old hymn asks the question, were you there when they crucified my Lord? And of course, the proper spiritual answer is, yeah. Yeah, I was. It wasn't his sin that pinned him to the cross. It was mine. It was yours. It was the sin of the whole world. We were there. See, earlier, John the Baptist pointed at Jesus and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He took away the sin of the world by becoming a sacrifice of atonement for us stepping into our place. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That's what was going on there on the cross. The effects of my sin were diverted to him. The effects of your sin were diverted to him. And when Jesus was dying, he knew what he was doing. I mean, his, his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane certainly makes that clear. He prayed that the cup of this work to come, this dying on the cross, of, of receiving in himself all of my sin, all of your sin, the sin of the whole world, of absorbing the wrath of God towards sin, he prayed that that cup might pass from him. And he knew what was going to happen. And his work for, was for all of us humans so that we might be cleared to make our way back to God. Not through what we did, of course, but through what he did, specifically the forgiveness he offers. You see, Jesus' prayer, Father, forgive them, clarifies our need. And the fact that Jesus devoted one of his last seven statements to a prayer for our forgiveness tells us something significant. We need forgiveness. That's very clear. There's a second part to it, though. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. You know, that doesn't mean that we're not responsible, not culpable, you know, for, for our actions. There's a suggestion here that human beings are in the grip of something they do not fully understand. The evil that lodges in the human heart is greater than we know. And this is why, friends, a weak view of sin 
just won't do. A, a weak view of sin underestimates the power and the consequences of sin. It, it, it's the way of our secular culture, isn't it? Oh, oh come on, he's not that bad. We all make mistakes. I'm sure she didn't mean it. There's a positive side to that. Don't get, I mean, it's good to be quick to forgive. But to try to brush wrongdoing under the rug is not a good thing. Sin is not just the reality that you and I do a wrong thing occasionally. That would make sin a periodic behavioral problem, which one would think could be improved upon, possibly even cured by greater personal effort, more structured self-discipline, and concentration on not doing that wrong thing. But, as I will keep repeating, sin is not just a behavior problem, it's a nature problem. Meaning the real problem is not that we do wrong things occasionally. The problem of sin is that we are naturally inclined to do wrong things. That's what is meant by sinful nature. The problem is not that we make a mistake every now and then. The problem is that we are inclined toward doing those things. There's a darkness in our hearts we don't want to admit. An evil that lodges there which is greater than we know. Our need for forgiveness is deep and real. And it's the very first thing for which Jesus prayed after being nailed to the cross. Forgiveness for all of us who hung him there. He prayed for them, us, as he was tormented by them, us. They were spitting on him, hurling insults at him, driving the spikes through his wrists and ankles and gambling for his clothes. And his response, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. See, Jesus was praying for their deepest need before they had any awareness of need at all. Jesus was praying forgiveness for sin while they were right in the midst of sin. And the apostle Paul summarizes this in Romans. You see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, God took the initiative. God was the first to move. God moved toward us and was acting on our behalf as our sin nailed him to the cross. His purpose was to make forgiveness possible and thus a reconciled relationship with him so that we might enjoy the life that's really life and live as the creatures he made us to be. His grace is amazing, truly. And forgiveness, forgiveness is a gift. It, that's an amazing thing in and of itself. We don't work it out on our own. We receive it. We accept it. It's, it's all God, not us. Even the ability to understand and accept the gift is a work of grace by the Holy Spirit. John Wesley called this provenient grace. Provenient grace is God's mercy that is extended to us and begins to work in us even before we turn to God and repent, preparing us to understand our need for God's mercy and to help us accept the gift of God's salvation. I mean, Jesus prayed 
for forgiveness for those of us, all of us, who condemned, tortured, and crucified him. That means multiple things, but one thing very important for us, there is no one beyond the reach of Jesus' prayer. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Again, Jesus could have prayed it silently, but he verbalized it. He wanted his followers to know that they were forgiven, to know that they're forgiven, and he wanted to teach us to forgive like he did. You see, following Jesus in forgiving others is an important part of being an apprentice of Jesus. The apostle Peter asked Jesus how many times he should forgive someone. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times or possibly 70 times seven times, Meaning, there's no limit. You should just keep forgiving, Jesus alluded to this in the Lord's Prayer. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. We don't understand this to mean that God won't forgive us if we don't forgive others. What, What it means is that unless you forgive, you carry bitterness around in your heart toward others. And when you're weighed down by bitterness, it impacts your whole life. You become a less gracious person. With bitterness in your heart, you get offended more easily. Remember what Micah 6, 8 says, what does the Lord your God require of you? Love mercy, do justice, walk humbly with God. It's really super hard to love mercy when you've got a root of bitterness in here. Jesus wants us to follow him in forgiving others as he has forgiven us. And in the example that he gave us in this first word from the cross is transforming for us, isn't it? I mean, you feel the power of it. If you just imagine your way into the scene for just a moment. In fact, those who witnessed the event that day were impacted and transformed. Go back to Simon of Cyrene just for a second, the guy made to carry Jesus' cross. He and his family had just arrived, we believe, in in town. Mark's gospel tells us that Simon had two sons. Mark goes on to name them, Alexander and Rufus. Certainly, they were all together in this pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover. Another pastor imagined his way into that scene. They had just arrived in town, saw a procession, and wondered what it was. They went to check it out. Simon, the father, realized what was happening and likely wanted to get his family out of there ASAP. But the soldiers picked him. So he carried the cross following Jesus. And his boys followed him with the crowd alongside the road. They arrived at Golgotha where Simon dropped the cross member. The guards immediately got to the work of crucifying Jesus and the two criminals. Simon caught his breath, rejoined his boys, and they were turning away when they heard the prayer. His voice was weak and strong all at once. 
Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they were changed. How could they not be changed? By such stunning, astounding, amazing grace. I mean, the example of Simon alone is dramatic. He literally took up the cross and followed in the footsteps of Jesus. Is that not the very definition of discipleship? Remember, long before Jesus was crucified, he gave us that image. Jesus said this, Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. And Jesus knew what was coming and he told us we would be called to follow him in that way of daily dying to self and giving of self on behalf of others. That's the way of Jesus. In the closing of his letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul lists a bunch of personal greetings. It's, it's very interesting. It's a long, long list. It starts right at the beginning of the chapter. Let's pick up at verse 11. Greet Herodian, my fellow Jew. Greet those in the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, those women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. Now, we don't know this for sure, but it's very possible, likely even, that Simon's son Rufus went on to be a prominent leader in the church in Rome. Why? Because they heard the prayer that day. Rufus was the boy who heard the prayer that changed everything. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Pray with me, would you? Lord, we really don't have words to respond to that kind of grace. Thank you. We say yes to you. Help us in all of our brokenness. Help us to receive all of the gifts that you desire to give us. In fact, that you died to give us. And help us, Lord, to become like you. We ask in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.